Thank you so much. It's great to be here uh, with you guys in Oklahoma, and it feels like spring to us. Uh, I know you all feel like it's cold, but we're like, wow, this is great. Uh, So it's a joy to be here. I'm glad that uh, we're able to come with my wife, Danielle. Uh, We've been married. It will be 22 years in September the 15th, the best day of my life ever, 1995. Uh, And so, yes, I have a 19-year-old son. Wow. Yeah, so I've got, uh, this year I'll have three teenagers. And so uh, we're blessed and I've been working out there under my dad for a while. But now we're, uh, we've been pastoring there for six years and it's a joy to be with you this morning. Standing in the, the, uh, the space of the illustrious Bishop Ed and Professor Chris and now me. So deal with it, I guess, right? Um, let's pray quickly because I'm going to need it. Father, we thank you this morning for life and strength. We thank you for this incredible idea that you have of the church, that we're united by one blood and one baptism across state lines, across national lines, across every line we could imagine. And so we're here in the unity of your spirit, and we ask, Holy Spirit, rain down among us, give me the right words, give all of us the right ears. I pray that our hearts would be tender this morning. Let your will be done in sanctuary as it is in heaven. We ask in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Amen. And so this morning in Lent, I'm going to be preaching to you this morning from the topic, Eternity, Starting with the End in Mind. And ours has become, I think you can identify with this, an increasingly immediate culture. We're the sort of folks that, maybe it's just me, that we like pace in front of the microwave, like, come on, let's get done already. I'm so bad, and all my analogies today, by the way, will be related to food. It's just is what it is. But I'm, I'm the sort of person that I will drive into the parking lot, and if the drive through line is too long, it's like, I don't have time for this. I'm out to the next place, right? And I'm not part of the slow food movement. I clearly should be, but I'm not. So uh, basically, we're in a culture in which, listen, having our desires fulfilled is the greatest good. But having them fulfilled quickly is even better. That's our culture. I'm so old, I remember Blockbuster. You see, now my kids don't even, they don't barely know what a DVD player is. Forget a VCR. My kids, they click on buttons, the next thing you know, it's up on the big screen, right, at home? Anybody remember the Friday night adventure of actually leaving your house to go to Blockbuster, and you would strategically plan your route to the particular place in the store because they may not have the copy of that movie that you want. You got to beat people. This is how we grew up, but now everything is instant. Everything is quick. Everything is immediate. The immediacy has a darker side, though. This sort of impulse and fulfillment has a darker effect on us. We see it in social media. Now, rather than having to sit with an idea and think about it or pray about it, we get a chance to just blurt it right out and have an audience listening to us. We've been trained. Some scientists even suggest that our brains are being rewired in terms of six-second edits and sound bites and things like that. That's how this sort of immediacy is pressing in on us. I even wonder, does this sort of cultural phenomenon affect our, our thinking's on th- something like marriage. 
The fact is, millennials, people that are much younger than me, are getting married at much lower rates. The fact is, it takes a long time to get to know somebody so well that you'd want to commit for the rest of your life to that person. Speed dating <laughs> is easier than marriage, and that marriage includes that vow that says, until death parts us, and that's a long, long time. See, making something like a marriage vow requires that I think way beyond my moment and actually think into my own death. It's the exact opposite of what our culture trains us to think. Our idea of thinking out is like 2018, right? That's our idea of the long view. Oh, you should see, I've, on my iCal, I've got stuff in 2018 on it. And then this idea of marriage comes up and it says, till death parts us. And all of our fingers are crossed because we're hoping that's a long ways off. And I think this short perspective is first and foremost a product of carnality, our fleshly inclinations. The fact that parts of us remain unredeemed in some way. But it's also the product of a spiritual warfare. And don't worry, I'm not going to preach so much about demons or any of that sort of thing. But I think this aversion of death, not thinking about it, not thinking about the end game, not thinking about eternity, not thinking what's on the other side of the grave, we don't want to. And I think part of that is a spiritual warfare issue. It's too far away. There's too many unknowns. It's very mysterious. And one of my favorite books on spiritual warfare, and maybe the best one ever written, was written by C.S. Lewis. There's a book called The Screwtape Letters. And in The Screwtape Letters, the master demon is named Screwtape, and he's writing to his understudy. And listen to what he says. The humans live in time, but our enemy, and the enemy, of course, is God. Our enemy, therefore, um, d destines them to eternity. He, therefore, I believe, wants them to attend chiefly to two things. God wants us to attend to eternity itself and to that point of time which they call the present. So some people get confused when they read Screwtape because they can't remember who's who and what's what, and people talk about God as the enemy, but basically here's what Lewis is pointing out, is that God has put us into time, but he's destined us for eternity, and while we're in time, God wants us focused on two things. Eternity and the present. Eternity and the present. But, but, Screwtape goes on to say that the demonic tactic, the tactic of the enemy, is to tempt humans to live in the past or the future. So here's the thing. God puts us in time and says, I want you to be present to the moment, but always thinking about eternity. The enemy comes in and says, I don't really want you to be thinking about now. I want you to be dwelling mostly in your past or the immediate future. If I live in the past, I can be consumed with regret or nostalgia. If I'm preoccupied with the future, I can be, I can be caught up in fantasy or fear. And God says, no, 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 no. Be present in the moment because the present is where eternity intersects with our lives. So the sermon title, I think, invites us into some redemptive tension. It invites us to start with 
the end in mind. And this is, I think, a good spot to jump into the text. I got the easiest text, John 3, the most famous verse in the whole Bible. Every football game features this verse. There's a whole movement based on the idea of being born again. Jimmy Carter, I think, is the first president to announce he was a born-again Christian. I think our friend Nicodemus in this text came to Jesus with some desires. And I think his desires were specifically related to Israel's future. Now, I want you to pay attention to that word, right? Because what did we say? The enemy's tactic is to get you to think about the future or the past, not the present or eternity. I think Nicodemus sits down with Jesus in the dark because he's got some desires about the future that he wants to talk about. The Eastern Orthodox theologian Paul Tarzai makes a compelling case that Nicodemus was not only a Pharisee, he's not only a member of the Sanhedrin, but he was also a zealot. He was also part of that tribe, part of that group that was determined to overthrow Roman rule in Palestine by any means necessary, including force. I had never even thought of that before, but Tarzai suggests that Nicodemus's name clues us in. It's conspicuous because Nicodemus is a compound name, a combination of Nike and Demos. Nike, we know, is the god of victory. And Demos is a term for people group. Nicodemus's name means victory to the people. And so Tarzai suggests this is not an accident that a Pharisee comes by night, a leader of the Jewish people comes by night to this up-and-coming rabbi wanting to get victory to the people. Demos is used four times in the New Testament, and every single time it's a reference to a riotous, rowdy, rowdy mob of people. I wonder what he was wanting when he talks to Jesus. Now, the backdrop here is pretty interesting. Jesus had been performing miracles at the end of John chapter 2 that were very persuasive to the public. He was performing these miracles in such a way that it says a lot of people began to believe in him. A lot of people began to follow him. There was a groundswell surrounding this rabbi from Galilee. And Nicodemus comes claiming to know. Has anybody ever done this to God? Oh, we know. We know what you're about. We know what you're up to. We know what the plan is. Has anybody besides me found out God does not cooperate with our presumptions of who he is, what he's about, what he's doing? He doesn't work that way. He's not cooperative. Newsflash to all of us. The conversation is so bizarre. He asks a question or makes a statement and doesn't even really ask a question. And Jesus responds by talking about being born. Just imagine Nicodemus' face. What in the world is this man talking about? And I think there's something here where Jesus is having a little bit of fun with Nicodemus, at least on some level. That Maybe as soon as Nicodemus says, we know that you're a teacher sent from God because you couldn't be performing these signs if that wasn't the case. 
I wonder if that word no sort of triggers trigger something in Jesus. And it, really, what do we all presume to know about Jesus? I remember I was asked to help uh, on a school trip one time. And my mom was taking a class of kids to the Museum of Natural History in New York City. And the Museum of Natural History is located on the upper west side of Manhattan. I was brought in specifically to be the navigator. My mother said, I'd like you to come. I want to focus just on keep, keeping the students in order, and we're just going to follow you wherever you're going. Dangerous, dangerous. So we get off of the commuter train, come up out of Grand Central Station, and I decide which, what subway we're going to take to get to the museum. And we get on the subway with all these kids, and we're getting them up out of the subway. And these are suburban kids. These are not city kids. So they're really kind of overwhelmed in Manhattan. And we get them up out onto the ground level, and they're walking down the street. And suddenly I, this, this sense comes over me. I realized that I assumed we were going to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which is on the Upper East Side, the exact opposite direction of the Museum of Natural History. And so being brought along exclusively as a guide, I now realize I have guided all of these children to the exact wrong place, and their parents who gave them just enough money to ride just enough subway rides I've got to put them all back on the subway, and they're going to miss probably an hour at the museum because I thought I knew where we were going. Now, the cost in that instance was small, 250 for a subway ride and 30 minutes lost, an hour lost, walking the wrong way. How much do we lose by coming to Jesus with mistaken assumptions? We know. We know exactly what he's up to. You see, I think Nicodemus is the victim of what I'm calling zealot math. The math for Nicodemus was this. Jesus, you're doing miraculous signs. God is clearly with you. And that means Rome is about to be overthrown. That's the math he's doing. But what would happen if Nicodemus' math actually worked? What would happen if Nicodemus, what he knew was actually the case? Well, rather than going to the cross and dying at the hands of Rome, Jesus overthrows Rome. Well, if there's, that happens, there's no crucifixion. There's no crucifixion, there's no resurrection. There's no resurrection, there's no new creation. There's no new creation. Sin and death are still unchecked powers in the universe. And Gentiles, which I'm assuming most of us are, we remain afar off, as the Apostle Paul said. In the end, Jesus would go down as an obscure military leader who orchestrated a successful coup against a Roman governor in Palestine. As a matter of fact, I don't even know that our calendar year would be 2018. 2017. Sorry, I'm still 
in the future. You see, I think the disciples even struggled with this, uh, uh, this idea of Jesus restoring political power. Because you'll notice after the resurrection in Acts chapter 1, the disciples come to Jesus and say, okay, that's nice. You went to the cross. This is amazing. God brought you up from the grave. That's fantastic. But can we get back down to business now? Right? Acts 1-6, what do they say? Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? And this is hearkening back to David's rule, to Solomon's rule. They're living in the past, hoping that it will fix their future. When in fact, God is in their present because he's already dealing with the end, eternity. You see, Nicodemus should have been thinking about Abraham, not David. He should have been thinking about the call of Father Abraham, not the palaces of King Solomon. You see, at the heart of God's work with Abraham and Israel is vocation. It's a calling. It's a telos in Greek. It's a a goal. And the goal is to bless the nations, plural. Instead, Nicodemus and his ilk which would be the disciples apparently, is they're thinking desperately, God, you have to fix our nation. And that blessing for them meant political autonomy. Blessing in their world meant that sometime in our lifetime, Pilate and Rome, they're going to pack up and move out. Again, this is not faithful to Father Abraham because he understood the promises of God were bigger than him. Abraham knew the promises of God are bigger than my lifetime. They're bigger than my moment. God's got an end game in view. This is why in Hebrews 11, the 10th verse, we're reminded that he looked forward. He looked forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. The disciples are looking for a city. It's called Jerusalem. They were living in it, and they were simply looking for a political coup, a a political shift, but this is not what God had in mind. Paul takes us to this in Galatians 4, and what does he say? He says, we're not caught up or concerned with the Jerusalem that is from below. We're looking for the Jerusalem that is from above. This is the heavenly Jerusalem. This is eternity intersecting with humanity. Abraham understood, at least on some level, God was doing this beyond his moment. And I think, just speculation here, but I think when Abraham's vision was lifted up beyond himself, beyond his lifetime, that gave him the motivation to get moving. When he heard God say, I'm going to bless the nations through you. At 75 years of age, he knew, well, clearly this isn't going to happen fully while I'm alive but I'm going to get going. Maybe a lot of us, we struggle taking that first step because our vision is too short-sighted. We don't feel the urge, the impetus to get up and go because we'll get there eventually. See, the promised land, this land of Canaan, was only a shadow was a prefiguring of what theologians call the age to come. 
And we can see this in the disciples, and we can see this uh, probably implicating all of the, the Jews. They're called Second Temple Judaism, this around the Herod's temple, this time period of, of Judaism at the time of Christ. They cannot imagine that the kingdom of God means anything other than something political. Yes, Jesus, they're looking at a glorified body. I want, I want us to fully enter that moment. They're looking at a glorified body that got up on the third day, walked through locked doors, and they're like, that's awesome, but. There's, when is Pilate leaving? Are we understanding how, listen, we can be so wired and so stunted in our imagination that all we're thinking about is this short view. And that's why I think we need baptized, sanctified imaginations. Because God's plan for your life, quote unquote, is not to get you through this week. I understand that people come for worship and they bring all sorts of trials. You bring burdens with you. You bring difficulties with you. And this is the place to be. With all of those things, this is the place to be. This table is the table that we have to come to because of this brokenness. But newsflash, God's ultimate purpose and plan is not to solve a health crisis, a financial crisis, or even a marital crisis. God's plan is not to get us into heaven when we die. See, God's work in the earth has never been about signs and wonders like the ones we talked about in John chapter 2. And that's where Nicodemus got caught up. He saw the signs. He saw God fix something and say, oh, this is what it's about. Don't let the immediate blessings of God distract you from the ultimate purposes of God. See, God's not looking merely to reward good behavior. He's recruiting. He's not merely rewarding. He's recruiting. He's recruiting human beings to participate in and be with him in setting the cosmic order to rights. In other words, God is recruiting folks just like you and me to join him in fixing a broken world. He's recruiting us. He's like, Uncle Sam wants you. Almighty God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit wants you to join up not in some militaristic army, but to join up in this revolutionary movement that is sabotaging the effects of sin in the earth. We miss out on this vocation, though, because we're looking for rewards. God, help me pay my bills. God, help me deal with cancer. God, help me stay married or get married or take my spouse away from me. Whatever you're asking God to do. And we see all of these things as rewards. I'll go to church every Sunday. I won't eat meat during Lent. I'll tithe. I'll do whatever horrible things you want me to do. so that you'll do this for me. And God's saying, this is not tit for tat. I can't be bought. As a matter of fact, in the psalm, when God says the cattle on a thousand hills are mine, he's actually saying it as a rebuke. 
He's not bragging. He's putting Israel in her place. He's saying, stop thinking you can impress me by giving me my own stuff back. He's coming to us, recruiting us, saying, when I created this place, I said it was very good, and I'm infatuated with it. I'm committed to it. I don't give up on the things that I started. I want to see them through to completion, and I want you to do it with me. He's a loving, interpersonal, relational, Trinitarian God who wants to insist upon participation, After all, he left the gospel to us and took his son. We miss out on this vocation for at least two two reasons. Number one, our vision is too narrow. Like I said, we think in terms of political, Jewish, just like Nicodemus, when in fact we should be thinking cosmic in all nations. Secondly, I think we miss out on this vocation because We tolerate or accept things in the now, in the present, that are inconsistent with God's plans for eternity. In other words, what do we know about the end? If we're starting with the end in mind, what do we know about the end? Well, I know that in the end there will be no racism, so why would I tolerate it now? I know that in the end there will be no poverty, so why do I tolerate it now? In the end, there'll be no materialism, so why do I cultivate it in my own heart now? How can I be faithful to this recruiting program if, in fact, I'm not interested in its implications now? And this is why we need to be born again. This is why we need to be born again, because God's looking for new humans God's looking for new humans. Being born again is being recruited into a restoration, revitalization program. It's entry into a way of being and perceiving that allows us to participate in the life of Jesus right now. Being born again, I love this, John 17, 3 says, this is eternal life. To know God and to believe in the one whom he sent. Every preacher told us eternal life is going to heaven after you die. That's not what the Bible says. Eternal life is now. We are born again so we can enter into this life of Jesus now. And this is a life that makes all sorts of things new, not just our spirits. That's Gnosticism. It makes the material world new to us. And this is something, I love this, being born again is something that is done to us. We don't do it to ourselves. It's something along the lines of to what Aquinas refers to as infused virtues. I need those. I need an infusion. I get a witness this morning. I need an infusion of some virtues here. (laughs) See, Jesus' bizarre bizarre born-again responses, they don't only expose Nicodemus' presumptions. He's revealing God's intentions to reset humanity now, right now in ways that will lead to a fully realized new creation. I want to go back to C.S. Lewis's screw tape. Now, this is screw tape again. He's talking to his understudy, and listen to what he says. God really does want to fill the universe with a lot of little loathsome replicas of himself. Look at this. Creatures whose life on its miniature scale 
will be qualitatively like his own. Not because he has absorbed them, but because their wills freely conform to his. This is infused virtue. See, and this is the telos. This is the ultimate good of humanity. This is abundant life. I don't care what the preacher on TV tried to sell us. Literally sell us. I turned on Christian TV two nights ago because I like to abuse myself. And the preacher said this, I'm pleading with you now. Give this $41 offering for Isaiah 41. Abundant life, not that way. Not that way. This way here. You must be born again, born of the Spirit, born of water, so that we can become loathsome replicas of God. This is what we need to be sold out to. This huge, participatory, revitalizing vision of why we're here. We're not here to attend church every Sunday and give us a social activity once a week. And we don't come to church to get holy life hacks. Step A, B, and C to a better marriage. That's not why we're here. We need to break away from obsessing over our past and fearing over our future. And instead, we need to let this grand vision of eternity begin to catalyze in our hearts. God, this is what you're doing. You're fixing everything that sin has broken. And it's, you're not in a rush, but you're inviting us to work with you in this. And I think Aquinas may have summed up my entire sermon. Thomas Aquinas has summed up my entire sermon neatly, and I should have read this and sat down about 20 minutes ago. And he said this, that in which one rests as the ultimate end dominates a man's affections since the whole rule of his life is taken from it. See, here's the good slash bad news this morning. We're all living with an end in mind. The decisions we make, the way our affections are stirred up, they're stirred up with a particular vision of the end in mind. The question is, does our vision of the end line up with God's? The call to frame our lives in the context of eternity and the age to come is not one to be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. It's just the opposite. The ultimate end of man is happiness because it is eternal life in a world as God intended. This is what the word shalom actually means. It's not like peace, bro. That's not shalom. It's living life the way God meant it to be lived. And this, it just happens, is not how Adam and sons left the planet, okay? And our actions as followers of Jesus must increasingly, I love this, move us increasingly. It's not going to all happen today. We're not going to have an altar call. I didn't bring, like, special oil from Jerusalem. I'm going to slather it on you at the end of the service. It's just incrementally. I love this. In, in Deuteronomy, God says, I brought you, I'm going to bring you into the promised land little by little. Because you can't handle it if I bring you in all at once. God, just a little bit more this week, I want to enter into this broad, spacious way of thinking about the end. And if we really are temples of the Holy Spirit right now, 
We believe that? You believe you're the temple of the Holy Spirit right now? You all say amen at sanctuary? Okay, I'm just checking. I got the handheld mic today, so I'm sweating and what happens. We need to have an inherently uh, spiritual sense that everything we do is spiritual because we're doing it as the temple of the Holy Spirit. So in other words, we need to remind ourselves today that prayer is not inherently more spiritual than cooking. It's true. On the other hand, acts done in and of themselves are not necessarily spiritual. Our intention comes to bear on all things. And when we understand that when we cook meals to the glory of God, thinking of this Eucharistic table, when we create our meals, the understanding and praying that somehow there will be fellowship and meaningful relationship and bonds made over a shared meal, suddenly that cooking is not a task. It's spiritual. Augustine helps us in this area. And this is what he says. Our deeds are worthy of praise or blame insofar as their ends are worthy of praise or blame. How much am I like Nicodemus this morning? You see, in my tradition, which will remain nameless, even though I am sweating and preaching with a handheld mic, (laughs) we're not seeking Rome's defeat, but we do cry out for America to turn back to God again. We're not looking for a Jewish king to be seated on the throne, but we are looking for the holy vacuum to suck us up into heaven so we can escape God's nuclear bombs. And of course, we're hoping that when we get there, we'll be on a harp, on a cloud, playing a harp for all of eternity. I was in church services. I don't know if you were ever in church services like this, but I was in church services where the preacher would get really worked up and up into a foam, and he would say things like, well, if y'all don't like church... You're not going to like heaven very much because we're going to be doing this for all of eternity. As in singing and preaching. No. But that's what, my, that's what we thought the end game was all about. The final vision that God has promised us in Revelation 21 is that of a garden city. Not outer space. Not clouds a garden city inhabited by men and women with glorified bodies. God loves his creation. He's not abandoning matter. See, the first Adam, he took a garden, turned it into a desert. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, the apostle Paul refers to the last Adam, Jesus. And in Lent, we're reminded of the fact that he entered a desert His presence in the desert began the shift of turning it back, not into a garden, but into a garden city. There's a reason Jesus was mistaken for a gardener on Easter Sunday morning. And so we now look at our jobs, our families, all of our creative endeavors, and we must ask ourselves this question. How does this fit into God's end, his ultimate purpose? Is my imagination big enough? Am I accepting and tolerating things now 
that are plainly inconsistent with then. How we think about eternity matters because we're supposed to be embodying it. Brian Zond gave an illustration that I think was really, really helpful. and He said the church is basically like a movie preview. The age to come, eternity, is the movie. It's the feature film. But when we go to the movies, we have that time, and it's love-hate, right? Some people love the previews. Other people can't stand the previews. But the fact is, a movie preview is not the movie itself. It shows parts of the movie, but it's not the movie in fullness. And the purpose of the preview is to shift something in your heart, to generate interest inside of you that says, I want to get in on that. I'm going to come back for that. And this is what our life as the church in the world is supposed to be. We are not the fullness of the age to come. We take the pressure off of ourselves to be that. That's not who we are. But people are supposed to get the main idea. And so we don't tolerate racism. We don't tolerate greed. We don't tolerate all of these things in ourselves. Forget, I'm not talking about looking out at other people. I'm not talking about judging the world. That's not our place. I'm saying let's start right here in the house of God and saying what am I tolerating that's not consistent with the end? Is my movie preview, have you ever seen a movie preview that sold you on a movie and you went to see the movie and you're like, this has nothing to do with the preview? I think there are a lot of people that will have the exact opposite. They've been looking at a lousy preview in the church and they're going to discover the feature film is much better than we've been letting on. You see, what we have to do is we have to realize there's like an existential GPS in each one of us. And if we're taking wrong step-by-step directions now, it's because we put the wrong destination in. We don't get the steps until we put the destination into the GPS. And I think our lack of thinking about the end, whether it was intentional or not, has profound effects on us. Because we're meandering about and we're driving. Yes, we're driving, but we're not heading anywhere. And I am not, I'm not trying to over-idealize this and say you're going to wake up every morning and say, God, this life I live today, I will live with eternity's values in view. I'm not saying that. But if we just a little bit more can be thinking about eternity. Just a little bit more. Just let eternity start to creep into our hearts. Being born anew of the spirit and of water. It frees me from putting inordinate pressure on my future to be successful. Because I realize Lewis at the end of his Narnia Chronicles talks about the fact that this life is just the prologue. When we die, chapter one begins. So I'm not trying to cram the whole book into the prologue. This redeems all of the quote-unquote menial practical tasks that I do because those menial things are connected to eternity. Education, art, cooking. I told you, food from the beginning to the end of the message. It's all connected to eternity. Marriage, supper, the lamb. Somebody, come on. This challenges me to think about what I'm doing now because what I'm doing now is going to be tested by fire, Paul says. And is this stuff going to be wood, hay, and stubble or gold, silver, and precious stones? 
ultimately, just like Nicodemus, this challenges my presumptions that I know. I love the way Ecclesiastes connects this idea of what's going on before us right now and the larger picture of eternity. Ecclesiastes 3 says, God has made every, everything. Somebody say everything. Somebody say everything. God has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10 a.m., or 11.30 a.m. If you would like more information about who we are and what we're about, or to partner financially with what God is doing through Sanctuary, you can go to our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com. You can also download our mobile app from the App Store and Google Play. We hope you'll join us next week. Grace and peace.